to Ephesians chapter 5. Last night at the reception uh, for Ricky and Elizabeth, several of the guys were standing around and said, now listen, you know, you preached one sermon, maybe one and a half to women, and you just keep on preaching to us men. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know it must feel that way for you if you're a man here today. But uh, remember uh, that if you and I, as men in our home, live as Christ, then we are setting the table for one of two things to happen. Either for our wives, hopefully for our wives, to follow that and then fulfill the role God has given her. Though we hold in mind that the more we live like Christ, if she, especially if she is not a believer, the more uh, difficult our marriage may become. This is, in other words, this is not a, uh, a solve-all-problems kind of Bible verse here. Men, if you leave resolved to live like Christ until you die, and you do so by His grace, you are not guaranteed that your wife will respond the way you hope she will. What you are guaranteed, both men and women, is that if you and I, if we live by His grace in the roles He has called us to fulfill, we have His blessing. We have His strength. We, we have His approval. We have His love being poured into our hearts so that we realize through the Holy Spirit how powerful and how strong and how loving our God is and that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's all we have. And that's all we need as Christians. That's all we need is that assurance that Jesus Christ is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? Those are not rarefied theological verses. Those are very practical verses that I've just quoted. You may have noticed them. Jesus is for us. God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? That's a practical verse. When in your home it is adversarial and your spouse is against you, you need to be quoting a verse like that. Jesus is for me right now. Therefore, no one can be against me. Because if not, then you'll be consumed with wrath and you'll respond as they're responding to you. You need to have the assurance when your spouse storms out the door and says, I'm never coming back and slams the door. You need to hear and by the way, it was quoted in Hebrews 13, verses 4, 5, and 6 about marriage. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You need to hear that. Ringing in your ears as your spouse says, I'm leaving you and I'm never coming back. Because if you don't have that hope, you will have no hope. You will have no hope. Now, as we were looking at the husband's role last week in verses 25, 26, and 27, we focused in on four very powerful truths. And that is that the love that a husband is to have for his wife is rooted in the love Christ has, first of all, for his church. It is not a secular or worldly love. It is a God love. And it is exemplified to us by the way Jesus Christ loves his bride, the church. That's the first thing we saw. Secondly, we said, we asked the question, well, then how does Jesus love His church? And we got three very clear answers. 
First of all, His love is rooted in atonement. In other words, He didn't just speak and talk about love, but He lived love to death. The death of a cross. That's how much He loved you. That's how much He loved me. That's how much He cared for His church, the bride, is He laid down His life. He did not have it taken from Him, but He gave it freely. No one could take it from Him. But He died so that we might live in the atonement. He made us at one with God. That's what He did. That's the first aspect of seeing Christ's love for the church. Secondly, we said that it's a sanctifying love. It doesn't just stop with, your sins are forgiven. It continued with, now I've imparted to you my righteousness. And I'm sanctifying you so that you might be holy and spotless and without wrinkle. No blemishes. That's, that's the kind of love Jesus has for His bride. And we applied that in the marriage. Right? We said, men, what that means is that you are so in love with Christ that you are consumed with Him and His Word to the point that your whole life is a walking, we might call it a daily devotion for your wife to watch. When she looks at you, she sees the Bible being lived in real life. And therefore, she is being sanctified. She is being challenged. She's being brought along in the Word. It's not contained to a five-minute devotional before she goes off to work. That's good. Listen, if you want to... I, one, of, one of my uh, pastoral heroes... Uh, uh, Harry Reader over at Briarwood. I, th- I love him. I love to listen to him preach. I love to watch his life. He, for years, for 20, 30 years now, has every morning after he is ready to go to work, his w- he rises much earlier than his wife, he goes in and instead of just kissing her and saying, I love you, he crawls in bed next to her with his word open and he reads her a portion of God's word. He prays for her and he goes to work. But let me tell you something. That is shallow and meaningless if your life doesn't match the word you're reading. You can't sanctify her by reading for two minutes or by praying for her out loud. No, if we're to be like Christ, we will live His Word so that she sees a living panorama. We will confess His Word. We will confess our sin. We will be first to sacrifice in our homes so that they might be sanctified, men. And then we said, what's the purpose of all this? Well, it's just like Christ's purpose. What was His purpose? He he worked without ceasing to bring us into the glorified state, to glorify us. The last truth we saw last week about the marriage is that the hope is glorification. I've thought about that more even this week. You know, won't it be a wonderful thing, men, to stand at the judgment, to stand before the throne of God, To stand before Him, as Hebrews says, naked, with nothing separating us from His pure eyes, and to have our bride, our earthly bride, next to us. Standing without shame, like Adam and Eve stood in the garden. No sin anymore. Atoned for, sanctified, and now glorified, standing together, saying, without spot without wrinkle, without blemish. Men, that, that is the greatest goal. You should be living your life. I should be living my life so that that day comes and we're ready and we're standing together. Unfortunately, there will be many who will see their husbands or wives 
separated by his scepter to the left. Stand with the goats. You're not my sheep. That is a painful day. And some of you are here right now, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you died and your spouse died, you would go separate ways for eternity. I just want to say something to you. He will not leave you, and He will not forsake you. Though you will suffer the bitter day of seeing your most loved companion headed to hell, He will dry every, every tear from your eyes. And He will comfort you as only He can. I'm not preaching these verses as if they are some nursery rhyme that if they live perfectly, everybody gets saved and everybody goes to heaven. It is a reality in this fallen world that Christians are married to lost people. It is a reality that Christians married to Christians who are rebellious. It is, it is a reality that we live in, and I don't want to gloss over it. You apply these scriptures, you apply these scriptures, and God may see fit because of the sanctification you bring into your home to save your spouse, and He may not see fit. But He Himself will not forsake you. Now we turn then from that to this uh, next passage in 28, or the same passage, but the next verses, 28 and thir through 30. Paul moves on to a second kind of explanation. A second, the, the, remember the one command is, love your wife as Christ loved the church. But he gives two explanations. One is, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and the other is, love your wife as you love yourself. The same command, two explanations. So we're looking at the second explanation of the command today. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever loved, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. First of all, we see that we must love our wives as our own flesh, our own self. That's in verse 28. You see it there. It's plainly spoken. These are, these are plainly spoken truths. This is not confusing. Listen, don't spend a lot of time reading behind the passage. Paul is telling you what he means. Love your wife like you love yourself. It's not hard to understand, is it? Very plain, isn't it? Let's dig at it a little. Paul exhorts husbands here. He's, he's exhorting them to love their wives specifically as they love themselves. So we see that first of all, there's a kind of self-love which God has granted to His creation, which He has created in us, a desire to take care of ourselves. Right? I remember uh, from the earliest days, sitting at the supper table, it was always about, was there enough food for me? I didn't care. Just be honest. I didn't care if my brother had anything to eat. What mattered was I had something to eat. He was worried about, did he have something to eat? And everybody around the table was worried about the same. Don't chide someone for self-love in this way. God made them that way. That's an instinct to preserve their life, which God gave them. It comes in handy. 
It comes in very important in real life situations. You will, you will, God is admitting here in the scriptures, you will always seek to preserve yourself. Now apply that to love your wife the way you what? Love yourself. What he's commanding us to do is very simple on the face of the statement, but it is very difficult to apply consistently in our lives. Because still today, if you'll be honest, when your stomach's grumbling, and you sit down at the table, you're worried about what you have to eat, not what your wife has to eat. In your natural self. It is beyond instinct for you to sit patiently and wait to make sure everyone else is provided for. And then take what's left. It is an instinct that must be overcome. When you think about great military figures in our history as a nation... They have been trained and they have learned to overcome the first instinct of save my own neck. They immediately begin to think about how do we save others. And they're willing at their own peril many times to die for their men. It's that way on a 9-11. I will never forget. Many of you watched the 9-11 commemoration, the 10-year anniversary. I will never forget the ladder company from the New York Fire Department. Everyone is running out on the street. Dust is everywhere. Cement is in the air. Things are falling apart. The world is coming to an end. And these men have their eyes, you saw them on the documentary, eyes ahead towards the Trade Center, towards that tower. Their one thought is, save somebody else. That's not natural. And it's not natural in your marriage. When you get into an argument, if you're being truthful, it's all about preserving your own image. When you fight with your wife, men, and you pummel her into submission to where she has to admit more than she should have to admit, where she has to confess more than she should have to confess, you, if you'll be honest in that moment, it's about you saving face. It's about preserving yourself. It's violating this very passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear that? Love your wife as your own flesh. What's the greatest commandment, Christ? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot fulfill the great commandment without fulfilling it in your home with your wife, men. Don't tell me you love your neighbor when you hate your wife. When you backbite, when you connive, when you lie, when you steal from her, and when you do not provide for her, no need to tell me you love your neighbor. That is a falsehood. What you do is love people outside your house because it's easy to do. What you do is love people in other places when others are watching so that you'll be thought well of. You're preserving yourself. Men, let's commit today to love our wives as Christ loved the church and as we love our own flesh. And it goes deeper than just simply, and you notice I brought up more examples than just protecting or providing. It goes to the very psychological depths of your marriage. 
We are breaking this example when we embarrass and ridicule our wives and make them the brunt of a joke in public. You're not loving her as yourself. You wouldn't want that done to you. When you take it upon yourself to publicly point out every flaw she has, you're breaking this. You're violating this. That's not loving. You wouldn't do it to yourself. The fact is that we must learn against our instinct to love our wives as ourselves. When your wife wounds you, men, this is when it becomes the hardest. You know, because she sinned against you. And your instinct is to hurt her. Let's be honest. She's sitting there next to you. She knows the truth. When she digs at you and she nags at you and she gets under your skin and hurts you, that's the moment that this was tested most, isn't it? Not when the intruder comes in at night. But when the intruder comes in from sin when she sins against you. Or when she simply points out your sin and your pride kicks in. And now all of a sudden, it's a time to get back at her. You strike at her with your words. You seek to tear her down, wound her, so that she hurts for another four or five hours, or a day, or a week. Men, we better come to the realization that what we say to our wives never, I mean never, goes away many times. You may cut her so deep that though she tries and she seeks under the grace of God to forgive you, and she may forgive you, she will not forget what you've said. And it will haunt her. We must learn to love our wives as ourselves. But he doesn't stop there. As Paul obviously always almost does, he goes deeper. He goes deeper into this relationship. Look what he says. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Is that not mysterious to you? What is he getting at? What is he referring to? It's one step further than what I've been describing. What I've been describing is like the entry level. And he goes one layer deep than that. He drives us back to the Garden of Eden. Now he doesn't directly quote the Garden here. He will in a couple verses. But I believe that behind this passage is the scene of the Garden of Eden. Where was man created from? The Lord God formed him out of what? The dust of the ground. Right? God made you men, first man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground. And then when he created him a partner, he didn't create her out of the dust of the ground. Where did Eve come from? She came from Adam's side. Love her as you love your own body, because she is your body. When you hate a woman, men, when you hate your woman, you're hating yourself. When you abuse her, you're abusing yourself. 
When you neglect her, you're neglecting yourself. It is not a, imagine if she was your body. Think of her like she's your body. Notice he says, she is your body. She is your own body. He goes further. He doesn't stop with the surface level. He drops down to the reality, and that is, God created her out of you. She belongs, and you belong together as one flesh. If you lash out at her, if you hurt her, if you cut her, if you neglect her, you're neglecting yourself. It is spiritually like going to the table, food prepared, and yet dying of starvation. Spiritually. It's why Peter says, if you will not dwell with your wife in a loving way, in an understanding way, God will not hear you. When you pray, you might as well pray to the rafters because it goes no further. Because you're self-mutilating. You're cutting your own flesh and God does not approve. You must love your wife as yourself. It's not just figurative. It is literal. If you look at the words, it's very clear. Secondly, in this text, we see that we not only love our wives, but we love her as our own flesh. And he says no one, if you notice, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. I think about this in I'm left with nothing but to think about the way we are to love our wives and care for our wives. Violating this native instinct that's born in us from God to care for ourselves and, and caring for her because she is our flesh. I think, I can't help but my mind goes back to a story from my youth when I heard where in our community a family had a house fire. There was only one fatality. The husband died in the yard just feet from his home. Apparently the family had been sleeping. And a fire broke out. And the father rose and went to first his wife there in the room, wrapped her in the bedding, and carried her from the home. The house is ablaze. He immediately ran back into the home and delivered their three children safe from that home, all of them wrapped in their bedding. As he brought the last child out, he's, the firemen have just arrived, and he's setting his little girl down. He collapsed. He was the only fatality. He lived and died this verse. The first priority in his mind was not, where's the exit? The first priority was, where's my wife? Once his wife was safe, his next thought was, where are my children? And he died, not from the flames, though he had been burned and singed, he died 
from smoke inhalation. Repetitively going into that home and getting those children had cost, and his wife had cost him his very life. Now men, you will not do that if you live a self-centered life every day under normal conditions. Your first thought will be, where's the exit? And it is that kind of love that is Paul is speaking of. Loving. It would, all I can think, and I don't know that man, and it's been a long time, I don't know his family, I just remember it from a distance, but all I can think is, what might, might have been in his mind is, to leave my family in there, is to leave myself in there. I'll go get my family. That's what this verse is about. Now, it applies not just figuratively or or in a story like that. It applies every day. When it comes to how you think and how you talk and how you conduct your life, everything should be about your wife and then your children, not about yourself. That means when that attractive co-worker walks by, to violate the covenant of your marriage, like Job said, and give your eyes to that woman, is to do that very act against your own self. See, it gets okay to sin because we separate our spouse from us at an arm's distance. And what Paul's done is brought her back to our side to say, when you harm her, you have harmed yourself. So, he tells us this, and you... You have natural instincts that must be overcome. You have to cultivate. You have to work every day to protect your wife and your home. Adam violated this principle. He had a one flesh union with his wife and he did not protect her. He was given a responsibility in the garden. It was not a vacation. He was to work. And part of his work was to tend and keep the garden. Those words in the Hebrew mean to protect and defend. It's the same words that the priest had given to them about the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and the fires of the temple later on. Protect and defend this place. The the picture is that the priest would have died on the steps of the temple keeping foreigners and people out who would defile the temple. They would die themselves. I think through historically some of our heroes. A man like John Calvin who was so serious about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that when he saw pagans coming to take it, he threw his own body between them and the Lord's table and said, you cannot partake. You must sever my arms from my body to take this supper. That same attitude was given to Adam about his wife and about the garden. Protect it and defend it. Tend it and keep it. He very obviously failed, didn't he? How do I know? He should have cut the head of that snake off when it entered his garden. It should have never made it to his wife. That snake should have never been at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew it was unclean. He knew it was unacceptable. And he stood by passively like a wimp and let Satan into his home. And he paid the severe consequence and we've paid with him. And some of us do the same thing, men. We sit like wimps while our children watch images they should never see. We sit like toads while our wives intake from the internet things, ungodly words and ideas they should never take in. 
And we're cowards. I'm a coward. You're a coward. We sit and let it happen. And then we wonder why she thinks like the world and acts like the world and leaves us like the world leaves. We have not protected and defended. We have not loved her as we loved our own sin. Would you drink poison, men? That's a question you need to ask and I need to ask. Would I drink poison? Well, then why would I give poison to my wife and children? See, Paul doesn't stop at the surface of love her like you love yourself. He goes on and says, she is yourself. That's why when God addressed Adam, he wasn't interested in Eve. Because, because what Adam did by allowing this perversion to come in, he was responsible for everything that took place. Not her. Third, we see that we are to love our wives like Christ loves the church. And the church is His body. Look at 29b and 30. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of His own body. Or of His body. In other words, Paul goes back. Now that he's dealt with the love your neighbor as yourself, he goes back to loving God as yourself. And he says the body of God, the body of Christ, is the church. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies because Christ loves the church as His own body. That's the reasoning of Paul in this text. Paul's back to an example based on Christ. He's exhorting based on Christ. He's saying to Christian husbands that we ought to love our wives like Christ loved the church, nursing and caring and providing for it as if and because it is His own body. Now, we're going to next a uh, couple of weeks from now deal with the end of the passage here and br- bring this series on husbands and wives to a conclusion and move into the relationship of the other relationships of the home. But I just want to say that if we miss this principle of loving our wives, then we have, there's no way the other verses matter. You, you, can't, you can't hurry through them. We need to understand, how is Christ provided for His church? He's not only provided in the past, He's providing today, every day, for us. He stands making intercession for us. He sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning on our behalf. He, it is He who took His blood into the Holy of Holies of heaven and covered the altar so that God remembers our sin no more. He gave up His glory so He might come in flesh and then having come in flesh, died, resurrected, and ascended back to glory, He now has put His righteousness on us. So that when He presents us before the Father, the Father will see Christ before He sees us. He will see us through the prism of Jesus Christ and His finished work. Men, when people see your wife, they are seeing your glory. Because when the church is seen, Christ's glory is evident. And so, when she goes into the world, when she operates and does her daily tasks, she is your glory. You better nourish her that way. You better build her up for that. And when she's your glory, 
she is also radiating back to you so that the world sees her through you. In other words, just because I know them well enough to do this, when the world sees Lisa Swinney, they see Dave Swinney. Rather than picking on our wives, men, we need to see ourselves in our wives. And we need to then work that Christ is seen in them and then in us. So that the world would say, when they see your wife, there he is. You don't even have to be around. You don't have to be asked, would you believe about something? Because your wife has already answered for you. And when she answers, they know she is so connected with her husband that she wouldn't have answered that unless he believes likewise. Your children ought to see you as such one flesh that to come to one and ask to do something and be told no, it's a waste of breath to go ask the next. Right? That's practical. That's the reality. Now they may still try it. But you reinforce Men, when your wife has said no, even if you think it's the silliest thing you've ever heard of that she said no to, please do not undermine that. Say, what did your mother say? No. That's what I said then. Is that clear? Then, in private, you might go privately and nicely and sweetly and say, honey, listen, let's don't get bent out of shape about this thing. I mean, we can let him do that. But don't ever do that in front of him. Because when you do, he sees it as a mockery of one flesh. You know, used to, it would have gone without saying the part about protecting our wives and children in, a, in case of an intruder. But on more than one occasion now, I have read and I have heard of men who actually sent their wives to look and see if there was danger in their home. Now, my southern malehood rises up and wants to take that guy out here behind the blind of trees and explain what a real man does when someone breaks in his house. But you know what I've been convicted of the last few weeks as I studied these passages? Yeah, I know full well, because it's already happened once in my marriage where someone tried to break in my home physically. And I know how I respond. My wife knows how I respond. She can tell you sometimes. It ain't pretty. But the reality is, unfortunately, men, as tough as I am towards an intruder in my home, spiritually, psychologically, mentally, I often leave the door wide open. And worse yet, once the intruder's in spiritually... I'm so passive, my wife has to go confront him. I, that's a worse mockery than the physical protection. Men, let's rise up. In this generation at Grace Fellowship, let us teach our sons that there is a protector in our homes. He is the representative of Christ, and as that representative, he represents his wife, who is one flesh with him. And he rises, not perfectly, but consistently to the challenge of being a Christian man who protects and provides for his home. 
Let's paint that picture for our young ones. We've got little ones being born, not by the second, but close to it in this fellowship. And that's a glorious thing, but it will be a sad thing for them to rise up and not understand what we've been teaching here, for them not to see it with their eyes. And they already do. I want to encourage you men. And some of you know this, but our, our children see these examples. You heard Tyler? That could be duplicated many times over with our little ones. They're watching. They're learning. They're growing. Let's continue. Let's continue. And let's, let's by the grace of God, improve by His grace so that they may look and see a shining picture of Christ and His church.